Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Monday, August 28th, 2023. All right, first thing I want to mention today is that it is our fundraiser at antiwar.com and the good news is now we have matching funds which means every dollar you donate will be doubled uh, we have thirty thousand dollars in these matching funds and we need to get to our goal of raising eighty thousand for this fundraiser um, so if you haven't donated yet now's a great time to do it you could double your impact go to antiwar.com donate and you can see the different ways that you can support us using credit card paypal cryptocurrency um, there's special donations you could set up or you could set up a monthly uh, recurring payment. So go to antiwar.com slash donate. Please help us out with that. And now to get into the news, the first story at the top of antiwar.com today, the U.S. expects to back Ukraine into 2024 and beyond. So most senior U.S. officials want to keep supporting the proxy war against Russia and are not looking for diplomatic off-ramps despite Ukraine's faltering counteroffensive. And this was reported by a Washington Post columnist, David Ignatius. So Ignatius, and this was published on Sunday, you know, he's known to have, you know, a lot of high-level sources in the government, um, especially the CIA. You know, he's kind of considered the closest you know, when it comes to the columnists from the big papers, the closest to the CIA. That's what Scott Horton tells me, at least. Um, but I just want to read this one uh, excerpt from his article. It reads, quote, I heard this same sentiment across all levels of the U.S. government in recent days. The summer has been frustrating and in some ways disappointing for Ukraine and its Western backers. But rather than look for a quick diplomatic exit ramp, most senior U.S. officials appear more convinced than ever of the need to stand fast with Kiev. The United States, in their view, cannot be seen to abandon its ally, end quote. So, you know, despite this struggling counteroffensive, they're saying, you know, he says most senior U.S. officials, which means, you know, Blinken, Sullivan, and all their deputies, I'm sure, are, are all gung-ho about continuing this war as well. Um, but U.S. intelligence has determined that Ukraine's counteroffensive will fail to meet its core objective of severing Russia's land bridge to Crimea. That was reported by the Washington Post recently, and it was again in Ignatius's column. But the U.S. is pressuring Ukraine to push harder and concentrate its forces to make a push toward the Sea of Azov in the south. Ignatius said the U.S. thinks Ukraine could still do some damage to Ru Russian forces, but does not expect a decisive blow. Uh, his column reads, quote, that means a continuation of this grueling war into 2024 and beyond, and a continuation of the heavy casualties and emotional trauma for both sides. U.S. officials believe strategic patience remains the best weapon against Russian President Vladimir Putin, who still thinks he can outlast Ukraine in the West, end quote. And I think it's pretty clear that time is on Russia's side. You know, this is a war on their border. This isn't a war across an ocean. Um, so I think that's interesting that they're saying they think they can, you know, outlast Putin. Uh, I mean, I think the Russian 
Russia could keep this war going for a very long time. So as the Biden administration is expecting to keep fueling the war for years to come, U.S. officials are considering ways to provide Ukraine with more forms of support. And one idea is to send more types of cluster munitions. Um, Ignatius said that there's growing backing in Washington for providing rocket-launched cluster munitions instead of just the artillery one. The, the cluster bombs that they've been providing so far are the 155 millimeter artillery rounds. So he's saying rocket launched, and I guess that means from the HIMARS rocket system. So they would be able to fire them much further, um, you know, from the front lines. So Ignatius said U.S. officials are expecting Ukraine to increase drone attacks on Russian territory as its forces are struggling on the ground. So on Friday, Russia's defense ministry said that Ukraine launched 42 drones at Crimea. So that's a lot. Uh, that's the biggest drone attack I've I've read about so far in this war when it comes to Ukrainian drone attacks on Russian territory. And Ignatius said that the attack is a foretaste of what's ahead. So these officials are saying that these drone attacks are going to keep increasing. And, you know, I just kind of sum things up at the end of this, just saying since Russia invaded Ukraine last year, the Biden administration has discouraged diplomacy, fueled the conflict by pouring tens of billions of dollars worth of weapons into the war zone and rejected, you know, the idea of a ceasefire ahead of the counteroffensive, even though there are a lot of reports, there's evidence that the U.S. and its Western allies did not think Ukraine would have much success in this counteroffensive, but they pushed for it anyway. So this is just another example. You know, if you go back to last year to April 2022, when Lloyd Austin said that they wanted to weaken Russia, you know, I think that's their idea here is to just keep this war going. It doesn't matter all that all these Ukrainians are dying. And sure, it doesn't matter that Russians are dying to them. So just keep it going. And, you know, they think they're keeping Russia bogged down here. Um, <clears throat> All right, so the next one here, Zelensky says that Ukraine elections could happen if they are funded by the West. So this is interesting. Um, Zelensky said on Sunday that Ukrainian elections could happen in wartime if Kiev receives funding from its Western backers and Ukraine's legislatures. legislators are willing to hold a vote. So as I've covered, Zelensky previously said that elections could not happen because they're forbidden by Ukraine's constitution during martial law. And Ukraine recently extended martial law until November 15th. They have to extend it every 90 days. Um, and Ukraine's next parliamentary elections are scheduled for October 2023. So that extension met no parliamentary elections. And then the next presidential election is due to be held in March 2024. And, you know, martial law is expected to be extended you know, for a while, because there's no sign that this war is going to end anytime soon. Um, so Ukraine's martial law prohibits men ages 18 to 60 from leaving the country. And Zelensky has used these powers to crack down on opposition. He banned 11 opposition parties and nationalized the television media. So again, this is interesting because Zelensky made these comments in response to calls from Senator Lindsey Graham for Ukraine to hold elections in 2024. The Ukrainian leader acknowledged that his country could lose some Western support for not holding elections as the war is being sold as a battle to uphold democracy. So I kind of find this funny because, you know, I've covered uh, Zelensky saying there's not going to be elections. Ukrainian officials saying they can't have them under martial law. And just kind of for covering that news and pointing out that this is being sold as a war for democracy, I got uh, just a lot of 
you know, angry emails and things. One of the stories I think was reprinted on Zero Hedge. So they have a pretty huge reach, you know, kind of calling me an idiot for thinking that there can be an election and all this. And now here you have, you know, Zelensky saying that there could be an election, that they could change the law um, because Lindsey Graham is is calling for it. And, you know, this is about maintaining support and maintaining the narrative that this is war for democracy. Um, so Zelensky said, quote, the logic is that if you are protecting democracy, then you have to think about this protection even during times of war. Elections are one of the protections. But there is a reason why elections are prohibited by law during wartime. It is very difficult to hold them, end quote. So Zelensky said that he told Lindsey Graham, who was just in Kiev again last week, I don't know how many times he's visited Ukraine, but it's been quite a bit, uh, Lindsey Graham. So anyway, Zelensky said that they can hold elections if the uh, legislators agree to change the law and if the U.S. and Europe foot the bill to pay for election observers on the front lines and he wants to provide voting access to millions of refugees who are living abroad, mostly in Europe. So Zelensky said the elections in peacetime would cost normally about $135 million and that he's not sure how much it would cost to hold them in wartime. He also said that he would not give up, use any money that's meant for weapons uh, for an election. So he's saying, give me the money and then, you know, we'll talk. So, uh, again, it's just kind of interesting to see. All right. The next one here, Russian authorities confirm Prigozhin's death. So this was on Sunday that the Russian investigative committee uh, said that genetic testing confirmed Wagner chief Yevgeny Prigozhin was killed in an August 23rd plane crash in Russia's Tver Oblast. So the Russian investigative committee said, quote, as part of the investigation into the plane crash in the, in the Tver region, molecular genetic examinations have been completed. According to their results, the identities of all 10 victims have been established they correspond to the list stated in the flight manifest, end quote. So if you remember when the, fir- the plane first crashed, Russia's air transport authority said that the list of passengers included Prigozhin, and it also included Dmitry Utkin, who's a Wagner commander, uh, believed to be a co-founder of the group, and Prigozhin's kind of acted as Prigozhin's deputy. So the Russian investigative committee did not say what caused the crash, um, And on Friday, the Kremlin denied Western claims that Putin ordered the killing of Prigozhin in retaliation for his short-lived mutiny that took place in June. Dmitry Peskov, who's the Kremlin spokesman, called these accusations uh, from the West absolute lies. U.S. officials speaking to media outlets said that a preliminary intelligence assessment concluded that an intentional explosion caused the plane crash, but the claim is not confirmed. We don't really know. And I mean, that's a vague uh, thing, an intentional explosion, because, I mean, are they saying that a bomb was planted or that somebody tampered with something? It's not really clear. Um, So we don't really know what the situation is. Maybe the Russian authorities are going to say eventually. I know there's others that suspected it was Russian air defenses. Um, So, uh, you know, we just don't really know right now. All right, the next one here, the U.S. Navy says that China must be challenged in the South China Sea. So the commander of the U.S. Navy's 7th Fleet said Sunday that the U.S. must must challenge China's aggressive behavior in the South China Sea, 
which is an area that has become a potential flashpoint for a conflict between Washington and Beijing. So these comments came from Vice Admiral Carl Thomas, and they came after incidents between Chinese and Philippine vessels near a disputed reef known as Second Thomas Shoal. One incident on August 5th involved Chinese boats firing a water cannon on Philippine vessels that were trying to resupply a grounded ship on the reef that Manila uses as a base of operations. So Thomas assured that the U.S. would back the Philippines in the face of shared challenges and that 7th Fleet forces, which are based in Japan, are out here for a reason, as he said. He said, quote, you have to challenge people, I would say, operating in a gray zone. When they're taking a little bit more and more and pushing you, you've got to push back. You have to sail and operate. There's really no better example of aggressive behavior than the activity on August 5th on the shoal, end quote. So Thomas made the comments while in Manila, where he met with the head of Philippine operations in the South China Sea, Vice Admiral Alberto Carlos. And, you know, the reason why this is such a dangerous situation is because the U.S. says that the U.S.-Philippine Mutual Defense Treaty applies to attacks on Philippine vessels in the South China Sea. So that means if this if this dispute between Beijing and Manila turns hot, you know, that could mean the U.S. is at war with China. I mean, that's how serious this is. Um, and the next one here is related. The Philippines and Australia practice retaking an island in the South China Sea. So Australian and Philippine troops backed by a group of U.S. Marines simulated retaking an island in the South China Sea amid heightened tensions in the region between Manila and Beijing. According to AFP, the drills took place at a naval base about 150 miles east of Scarborough Shoal, which is a chain of disputed rocks and reefs in the South China Sea that's been controlled by China since 2012. And it's also claimed by the Philippines and Taiwan. That's something that's interesting is that Taiwan claims the same uh, areas as China in the South China Sea. And I believe it was actually Chiang Kai-shek that drew the nine-dash line, as it's called, uh, that outlines uh, the areas that China claims. Um, so anyway, the, these exercises involved about 1,200 Australian soldiers, 560 Philippine Marines storming a beach using parachutes, amphibious landing vessels, and a U.S. Osprey aircraft. According to AEP, 120 U.S. Marines also participated in the exercise. Speaking of Marines and Ospreys, in Australia, uh, just north of Darwin, on an island, I think, uh, a U.S. Osprey crashed over the weekend, killing three U.S. Marines. And just a few weeks ago, an uh, Australian helicopter or plane crashed while they were doing drills with the U.S., killing a few Australian troops. Um so this, this landing that they simulated was part of Exercise uh, Alon, which is the first ever joint amphibious military exercise between Australia and the Philippines. Philippine President Ferdinand Marcos Jr., also known as Bong Bong. Uh, so he was there, and so was visiting Australian Defense Minister Richard Marles, and they observed the mock beach assault. Marcos had kind of an interesting quote. He said, quote, Considering that there have been so many events that attest to the vol volatility of the region, this kind of exercise, this kind of close strategic cooperation between countries around the region is extremely important, end quote. And so the U.S., you know, this is part of the U.S. plans is to encourage its allies to increase military cooperation. This is all part of this plan to 
prepare for you know a future war with China in the region. That's what they are doing. Um, so I want to take this moment to mention our sponsor for today's show, and that is the Expat Money Summit. So if you go to expatmoneysummit.com, you can reserve your free ticket to the summit, which is going to be held on October 2nd to October 6th. And more than 30 experts with decades of experience will reveal how you can reclaim your freedom abroad, legally reduce your tax bill, and maximize your returns with zero fear or worry. So this is uh, hosted by Mikkel Thorup, who's the head of Expat Money, and he has a very uh, unique skill, uh, you know, unique knowledge that he brings to people that are considering moving out of the country or getting a residency, you kind of a backup plan. And you know, it's a shame because I talk about the South China Sea a lot, and I've only been to uh, Cambodia in Southeast Asia, but I mean, and Singapore actually. But I love, I loved it. Southeast Asia is an amazing place. And it's unfortunate that, you know, there might be a big war there in the future um, because I, I did Mikkel's podcast, the Expat Money podcast, and we were talking about where is a good place. You know, if you want to move out of the U.S. or if you live in a different country and you want to move out, he's from Canada, Mikkel, you know, where, where's a safe place if World War Three breaks out? And what we concluded was South, South America, you know, Central America kind of removed from where, you know, these showdowns, big battles could go down. Um, so go to expatmoneysummit.com again to get your free ticket. Lots of great speakers, and you could just learn a lot of really interesting things. And again, I think in this day and age when you could work online, it's a really it's something. Even if you haven't considered it, I think it's worth checking out because you might be surprised by, um, you know how how realistic it could be for you to pursue something like moving out of the country. All right, so the next news story here, the U.S. launches airstrike in Somalia, claims 13 killed. So the U.S. launched an airstrike in Somalia early in the morning on Saturday, and this was reported by U.S. Africa Command in a press release on Sunday. So AFRICOM said the strike was launched about 28 miles northwest of the southern port city of Kismayo, which is uh, down in the south, and... Sorry, I just lost my spot here. Oh, so the AFRICOM said that its initial assessment found 13 Al-Shabaab fighters were killed and no civilians were harmed. And, you know, we we always have to point out that the Pentagon and AFRICOM, especially in Somalia, they're notorious for undercounting civilian casualties. You know, if there's no media pressure, um, then, you know, they're not going to tell us that they killed or hurt civilians. AFRICOM said the strike was launched in support of the U.S.-backed Mogadishu-based government whose forces were engaged with al-Shabaab on the ground. So the last known U.S. airstrike in Somalia was conducted by AFRICOM on August 15th. So as far as I know, this is the second U.S. airstrike in Somalia in August, but we also don't know. You know, the CIA could also be launching drone strikes or other, uh, you know, uh, factions of the U.S. military that are more secretive than, uh, you know, these AFRICOM airstrikes. All right, the next one here, Niger places its military on high alert amid tensions. So Niger has placed its military on maximum alert over fears that the economic community of West African states, ECOWAS, will invade to reinstate Nigerian President Mohamed Bazoum, who was ousted in a July 26 coup. An an internal document issued by Niger's junta, Uh, by their defense chief, said the order to put the military on its highest state of readiness is to avoid a general surprise. The document said that the threats of aggression to the national territory are increasingly being felt. 
So ECOWAS has been threatening military action to reinstate Bazoom if diplomacy fails. According to Reuters, the bloc tried to downplay its threats on Friday, saying that it was still leaving room for negotiations while not ruling out military action. So ECOWAS Commission President said, quote, For the avoidance of doubt, let me state unequivocally that ECOWAS has neither declared war on the people of Niger, nor is there a plan as it is being purported to invade the country, end quote. But that's just not true because they are threatening intervention. And if you you know, need to intervene to reinstate Bazoom, that's going to require an invasion. And it could really spiral into a major regional war. So another update is that, you know, when I've been covering this, I've been mentioning that Burkina Faso and Mali have said if ECOWAS attacks Niger, they'll consider it a declaration of war against them. Well, Niger have, has given them the authorization to send troops if they are attacked. So it looks like they will be intervening if ECOWAS launches the invasion. And also on Friday, the Niger junta ordered the French ambassador to leave the country within 48 hours. Uh, And that demand was rejected by France. They said, nope, you have no authority. This post-coup government has no authority. We're not going anywhere. So that deadline has expired. So, you know, let's see if they do something, try to do something about it. Um, And just a reminder that France has troops in Niger. They have about 1,500. And the U.S. has about 1,100 troops in that big drone base that they sure don't want to give up. All right, the next one here, Saudi Arabia moles nuclear power offer from China. So this article is from Middle East Eye, and this is interesting because, so the Saudis, so the U.S. really wants to get this Saudi-Israel normalization deal. The Biden administration wants to clinch this before the elections, which I think is just unlikely, like just not going to happen. I don't think either side is really going to go for it. Um, unless the U.S. gives them everything that they're asking for. The Saudis want a security guarantee from the U.S. Um, Israel's saying that they want new security guarantees now from the U.S. And another thing the Saudis want is help developing a nuclear program, what they, you know, a civilian nuclear program. So what's interesting is that Saudi Arabia is now, uh, this is according to a report from Financial Times, but I think it's, I've seen it elsewhere as well, that the Saudis are considering bids to build a nuclear power station from countries including China, Russia, and France, as the kingdom attempts to pressure the U.S. over a sensitive security pact. Um, so, again, this is just, I think the Saudis are, you know, really trying to use their leverage with the U.S., and that has a lot to do with what they've been doing lately with China, and they just normalize with Iran. Um, not not saying, you know, that they normalize with Iran to get leverage over the U.S., but I think they're going to use you know, they know that they have a lot of leverage over the U.S. right now. And even though, you know, there's that report recently that said the Saudis were basically slaughtering Ethiopian migrants on their border, you know, Biden's still looking to, you know, give them this these new security guarantees because they really want this normalization deal with Israel. You know, I think they're going to be willing to ignore, look past a lot of things that the Saudis are doing. Um, so it's just, and, and Saudi Arabia has been invited to join BRICS, which is a pretty big deal considering that they're, you know, the the ones that back the petrodollar uh, by trading all their oil with the dollar. All right, the last one here, this is an article from Kyle Anzalone over at the Libertarian Institute. Millie says that the U.S. is in the Middle East for years to come. So America's top general said that Washington plans to maintain its force posture in the Middle East. Chairman of the Joint Chiefs General Mark Milley stressed the region's significant importance to American foreign policy. 
this is this was in an interview on uh, TV, Jordan Jordanian TV. Millie said, quote, I can't imagine that the United States would ever walk away from the Middle East. I think we'll remain committed for many, many years and decades to come. We have a very close friendships and partnerships, and we want to make sure that the region is stable. Obviously, the region is a primary source of oil and energy resources for other parts of the world, end quote. Um, and then he specifically was discussing Iraq and Syria, where the U.S., you know, on paper is there to fight ISIS, even though ISIS doesn't really control any significant territory. They're relegated to the kind of rural areas. And again, they, they don't like hold really any territory. Um, but Millie says that there's still ISIS. We got to stay in Iraq and Syria. He said, quote, there are still fighters in small groups in and around Syria and around Iraq. And if we were to somehow suddenly withdraw, the Islamic State could reconstruct themselves. So the situation is much, much better than it was. But it still requires a level of commitment. So we've got some modest amount of forces in Syria and we've got forces in Iraq, end quote. So, I mean, the presence in Syria is really about the sanctions, the economic campaign against Syria. The U.S. is able to control about a third of eastern of the country of Syria in the eastern part because they back the Kurdish-led SDF. And again, on paper, they're there for ISIS. But if they left, I mean, the Kurds have said that they would, you know, work out a deal with Damascus. And they're all enemies of ISIS, Syria and all of its allies and the Kurds. So, you know, there, there's plenty of people to fight ISIS if the U.S. leaves. Um, so it's just kind of a fake uh, talking point to justify this continued presence. That very dangerous presence that risks war with Russia because Russia has a presence in Syria. Um it's just a tripwire for a major war. Uh, but that's it for the news for today. Go check out our viewpoints. We have one from William Astore, the most fundamental problem with the U.S. military. One from Ted Snyder, who killed Evgeny Prigozhin, uh, his thoughts on the on his death. One from Alex Norutstay. I always pronounce his name wrong. That's over at the Cato Institute. The chance of being killed by foreign-born terrorists is one in 4.3 million per year. One from Daniel Davis at 1945, fighting China over Taiwan could cripple the U.S. military. And there's Scott Horton just did a really good interview with Lyle Goldstein about what the cost of a war over Taiwan would be. Because, you know, all these think tanks, they, I mean, what the, think tank, what the think tanks are estimating is pretty horrific. Basically, in the first two weeks, thousands of U.S. troops would be killed. You know, nearly a thousand U.S. planes would be downed. We would lose tons of ships. Um, and the U.S. would exhaust, you know, all of its missiles. Um, but they get more into kind of really what it means. And, and those think tanks never really consider nuclear escalation, um, which is something that they discuss. Uh, and then the spotlight is from Branko Marchteach at Responsible Statecraft. Are U.S. officials signaling a new forever war in Ukraine? Well, that's everything for me for today. Please uh, help us with our fundraiser, antiwar.com slash donate. You could also... Help us out just by sharing this show, telling your friends about antiwar.com, liking, subscribing, following us on Twitter, all that stuff. I'll be back tomorrow with some more news. Thanks for listening.